Well, friends, thank you for joining us. Uh, now we have the privilege of doing the highlight of our week, reading from God's holy, inerrant, inspired word and having it explained through a preached message. Now, these are unique moments for us as a church because this is the one time in the week where we get to do this, a shaping moment, the moment where uh, the Lord re news our mind again and helps us to be reminded of what we most need to know. We are going through the book of 1 Peter and we're up to chapter 4 verse 7 through 9. And if you'd like a Bible, you can put your hand up and we can give you a Bible so you can read along and check what I'm saying is actually there and look at the context and all of that. So if you'd like one, you can put your hand up and if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's a gift from us to you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What if you knew, somehow, with certainty, that Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow morning? What would you do? And what would you do if you knew that for sure tomorrow Jesus Christ is coming back? I mean, it's probably too soon to go visit that place you've always wanted to go or go on that holiday. You might have a chance to go to the restaurant you've always wanted to go and taste that food. Perhaps you might feel a sense of relief that junk room that you <laughs> were dreading or the mountainous pile of laundry that seems to ever refill well, you can leave that bad boy and get to it in the new heavens and the new earth. Perhaps if you knew Christ was coming back tomorrow, you'd, you'd have a, a sense of, oh, I've got to restore this relationship that's broken down. Perhaps you've got family or friendship issues and you think, I've got to deal with it now. Maybe you'd think, okay, I, I better clean my life up a bit. I don't want to be caught in the act of some you know, sinful lifestyle if the Lord Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. And perhaps uh, you'd be more urgent in evangelism. You'd have a sense of, like, okay, I better go. I, I better go and tell my friends and my family about Christ's return. What if we change it, though, a little bit and say, Jesus Christ is going to come back for sure sometime in the next two or three years? What would you do then? <laughs> How would that change how you live? Well, in today's passage, the pastor and apostle, Peter, has an answer to that question, which is not a little surprising and if not, uninspiring. Peter says, the end of all things is near, so pray. The end of all things is near, so love one another. The end of all things is near, so have someone over for lunch. It's so ordinary. It sounds a bit like, and I think it kind of captures the heart of it, the famous World War II British propaganda poster, Keep Calm 
and carry on. They produced 2.4 million of those posters because they thought early on in the war the Germans were going to bomb um, England. Uh, early on, that never happened. And actually, those posters never went out. But they were resurfaced in the year 2000, became really popular. But I think it's actually quite a helpful framing of today's passage. Keep calm and carry on. But when we think of the end times, if you know anything about the Christian world, the end of the world, we usually think of bunkers, food stockpiling, cults, panic, chaos, people withdrawing from the world, charts with dates, calendars with predictions, nuclear holocaust. Uh, In fact, just recently, within the last month, we had someone visit our church that was predicting that in two years' time there's going to be a nuclear holocaust and Jesus Christ is coming back. I said, thank you for telling me. Please don't talk to anyone. Uh, Because the reality is this way of thinking is misguided at best and is unbiblical. This is not how the New Testament speaks of how to prepare for the end of the world. When Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, in verse 7, He's actually not talking about a prediction of the imminent return of Christ. He's not saying to the churches, guys, guess what? I reckon he's coming, so let's get ready. No. When the New Testament authors speak of the end of all things, the last days, they're actually talking about a period of time or a stage in God's redemptive plan. They're talking about the phase that we've entered into right now, the last chapter in God's redemptive plan. If you think of God's plan from Genesis through to Revelation in the scriptures, of his plan to save sinners like you and I, from Adam to Abraham and the covenant, through Joseph and the brothers going to Egypt, the Exodus, the law, the covenant with Moses at Sinai and the people entering the promised land through the kingdom of David, Temple with Solomon, exile, return to Israel. All these are stages. These are all plans for the redemption of his people. And then Jesus Christ comes. And really, that's the ultimate part of the plan. That God sent his son Jesus into the world to live just like us. But the difference was he lived a completely righteous and perfect life. And he had to do that because God's redemptive plan, his plan to pull us out of slavery to sin, involves sending his son to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died in our place and for our sins. He was buried. And three days later, the next phase happened. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He was given a resurrection body, physical, to live on this earth as a sign of what will happen in the new heavens, which will be heaven here on earth with physical resurrected bodies. For 40 days, he taught, preached, appeared, and then he ascended into heaven. And that moment when he ascended into heaven, he goes to the right hand of the Father and then sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that is when the last days began. So when the Bible says the last days, uh, Peter's talking about the age of the church, the last stage, the last thing on God's schedule to happen before Jesus comes back is the church loves one another and makes disciples and then Jesus returns. It could be, it could have been that when Peter was writing it, they, they thought maybe it would happen in their lifetime. Peter knew it wouldn't because Peter actually was told by Jesus that he would die. So Peter knew Jesus would never return in his own lifetime. 
But the church thought it would happen, and so Peter later wrote in 2 Peter that one day is like a thousand years to the Lord, so God is patient, and you need to be patient. So it's been about two days since Jesus rose again, if a day is a thousand years. And we are in the last days. That's what Peter's saying. This is the last days. There's lots of confusion about this topic in the Christian world, but if you study the Bible, I believe this is the best way of understanding it. The only thing left on God's schedule is the return of Christ. And it will come like a thief in the night. We won't know when. So we can put away our charts. Don't need to build a bunker. You can, you know, click cancel on your Amazon radioactive proof suit. You don't need that for the nuclear holocaust. Because Peter has told us what we're meant to do while we wait. So what are we meant to do? Well, it's surprisingly ordinary. Peter has four things for us, three which we'll look at today, and then the fourth one we'll actually look at next week in verses 10 to 11. Three commands for how to live in the end times. Simply, pray, love, eat. Not eat, pray, love, if you know the book or the movie, a very different way of living. Pray, love, and eat. With one heart, I think Peter has for the believers. The end is coming. So keep calm and carry on. So let's look at each one of these divinely inspired instructions for our lives to know how to live in the last days. Point number one, pray. Let's look at verse seven again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. First, Peter commands his churches that are dispersed across Turkey in light of the reality that we're in the end times to have a self-controlled and sober mindset. That is, be in your right minds. Be fully in control of your thoughts and actions. Don't be dulled by excessive escapism through entertainment, pleasure, drugs or alcohol. Don't be caught up in fear and panic. Instead, he leans in and he says, guys, the end is coming be razor sharp, be sober. And what's the purpose of this sober-mindedness? Well, it seems a little bit out of place, doesn't it? We would think, you know, Peter's would more likely say something like this, be razor sharp in your thinking so that you can get great ATAR and test scores and get win at work, no. Maybe more Christianly, you can have the best arguments to defend your faith, not quite. Be razor sharp so that you can come up with the best strategy for church growth? No. Plan out how to keep safe in a hostile world? No. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. Be razor sharp for the sake of your prayers. The knowledge that the end of the world is near, is at hand, we're in this last stage of redemption, should lead to a razor-sharp prayer life. David Helm in his commentary says it like this, the mark of a Christian at the end of the world is that the end of the world is coming, sorry, the mark of a Christian at the end of the age is a person on his or her knees in prayer. Instead of a fatalistic apathy, well, if God's coming back, why bother? Peter calls for engaged prayer. 
In the heat of a hostile world, in a time when it's hard to be a follower of Jesus, our temptation, my temptation, will be to try and escape the pain, escape the trouble, either by going underground or falling back into old sins or just distracting myself to death. But instead, Peter says, we are to wake up, splash cold water on our faces and pray. And this is a lesson that the Apostle Peter learned the hard way. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he took his disciples into the garden after a maybe a bit of a boozy meal, really. I mean, they were eating and drinking the Last Supper. They had lots of wine. And Jesus knew that he was going towards his death. The disciples, I think, weren't really clued into what was happening. It was dark. It was late. They had a full stomach. And Peter go, uh, Jesus takes the disciples in uh, to the Garden of Olives. And he says, wait and watch here and pray. And he goes off on his own and he wrestles in agonizing, sober-minded, self-controlled prayer. He is laid out before the Lord in agony as he, as he thinks of the approaching wrath he's about to bear upon the cross. And he comes back three times to Peter, James, and John, who Jesus had specifically asked to come and watch and pray with him. And three times he returns and they're asleep. The very opposite of being sober-minded and alert. And Jesus says to them in that moment, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. But instead, Peter slept. Within a few short hours, we know the story. Peter's by a campfire while Jesus is being questioned, spat upon, slapped in an unlawful trial. And a servant girl comes up to him and says, weren't you one of the disciples? And Peter stumbles, he falters, and he denies knowing Jesus Christ in that moment. Jesus said, be sober-minded. Peter was asleep. And so Peter knows all too well what it is to not be sober-minded and watchful in prayer. And he knows the shame. He knows the disastrous consequences. He also knows the grace of the Lord Jesus who restored him, even though he denied him three times. And so he leans into the churches and says, friends, don't do what I did. We're in the last stage. The times are hard. It's hostile. Wake up and pray. It's not a garden tour. It's a war zone. And we need to think and pray like we're in one. Now, this is all well and good, but the reality is for most of us, myself included, prayer itself feels like the war zone, does it not? The battle feels not like with the world as much as just within to pray. If you're a Christian, you probably know how hard it is to pray. Kevin DeYoung, a famous uh, pastor and author, has recently written a book on the Lord's Prayer, and it opens like this. Is there, any more, is there any activity more essential to the Christian life and yet more discouraging in the Christian life than prayer? We know we should pray. We want to pray. Or at least we want to want to pray. We admire those who do pray. 
And yet, when it comes to actually praying, most of us feel like failures. If someone asked us right now, how's your prayer life going? Very few would be happy for the question and confident in our response. We wish we prayed more often. We wish we prayed longer. We wish we prayed better. I bet none of us anticipates getting to the end of our lives and thinking to ourselves, you know what, I feel really good about my prayer life. We're much more apt to resonate with the question I read from a pastor several years ago as he reflected on his own life and prayer. How can something I'm so bad at be God's will for my life? We're called to raise a sharp, sober-minded prayer But the reality is for myself and probably for you, this is one of the hardest and most discouraging parts of living as a Christian. But note that Peter here is not simply saying, pray more, though that is always good. He's actually calling for a certain type of prayer. That's why the link is, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's, he's calling for a sober-minded prayerfulness. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, helpfully clarifies what type of prayer Peter is actually talking about. The idea is not simply so that you can pray, but in order to pray more, effect, more appro- effectively, more appropriately. Christians should be alert to events and evaluate them correctly in order to be able to pray more intelligently. What this verse teaches could well be put into practice when reading the newspaper, listening to the news, traveling to work, and so on. So I think what Peter is saying is is not just pray more, but pray differently. Engage in the world in such a way you're sort of on your toes, you're sober-minded, you realize this is one life, it's all I've got, these are everyone's lives, that's all they've got, Life is short, judgment is certain, hell is real, Satan is active, there's a war going on, people need prayer. We're not to be passive observers of life, but engaged prayers. That's what Peter's saying. So you're on the bus to work tomorrow and and you see a couple having a fight and a bickering. Well, pray for them. You hear of the latest update of what's happening in Ukraine. And you don't just go, oh, that's sad. You, you, you sober yourself and think, I need to pray for my brothers and sisters. I think that's what Peter's saying. You get to work and you find out there's going to be an epic, big Christmas party with free food and grog and everyone's pumped. There, Everyone's ready. You start praying. I encourage you all to sign up to our Sovereign Grace Global Missions newsletter. So you can be constantly informed of what work God is doing in our family of churches across the world so that you can be sober-minded and self-controlled and pray for our dear brothers and sisters. That's why we do monthly mission prayers on a Friday night. Come along. If you've never been to a mission prayer, please come. It might feel like, oh, this is the weirdest thing and the hardest thing. I guarantee you it's much easier to pray for an hour when you're with 15 other people who are there in faith ready to pray. That's why I love going, because I struggle to pray. But when I'm in that room, I find it a lot easier to pray. I know it's Friday night. I know it's the last kind of thing you want to do at the end of a work week. But there is this verse is saying, sober-minded, let's, let's come together and pray. There's a lot going on in this world. So, Peter looks in. 
Going back to verse 1, which we saw last week, to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, ready to suffer. Now he's saying, arm yourselves with sober thoughts and pray. The end of the world is coming. Therefore, pray. Keep calm and carry on, Peter says. Let's look at the second thing, point number two, love. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's unpack this verse bit by bit. There's a few key things to look at. First, the primacy of love. Look at those first two words, above all, above all. This is preeminent in the Christian life. Love is of the highest priority. When Jesus summarized the whole Old Testament law, he summarized it, love God and love neighbor. So in the last days, it's crucial that we don't lose our priorities, the priority to love. The last days, the age that we live in, is not a time for self-preservation and self-preoccupation. The last days are a time for self-sacrificial love for the good of others. Suffering and hard makes us go in on ourselves, but the Christian call is above all is to go out. Secondly, this is communal love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This is not a personal, pietistic, warm and fuzzy feeling. This is nitty-gritty, real-life community love. This is what happens in real life and real church community. And one another love, as biblically defined, is only possible if you're in one another's lives. And it requires being a part of a local church that you're committed to, with people you know, with people that you're around enough that you, need, you, know, you can love them and you need the second half of the verse to cover a multitude of sins. If you're not committed to a local church, I wonder how are you possibly fulfilling this command of Scripture to love one another? It's not primarily talking about family love or neighbors around it. He's talking to the churches. And if you're not in a church and you're not consistently going or COVID took you out and you haven't yet fully come back in, can I encourage you, above all, above all, come back. Because that's how you're going to obey this verse most effectively. That's how you're going to be prepared for the end times and live in God's will in the end times. Remember, this is a call for us to keep pressing into one another at church especially for us at SG Para in our life groups. And remember, love is self-sacrifice for the good of others. We learn what love is, not from the movies, not from the books, but from the cross of Jesus Christ. This is where we see love displayed, where he poured out his life for us. So we learn how to love by looking to him. Love, this verse, isn't calling for kind of warm well wishes on a Wednesday or Thursday night at Life Group and now I'm going back to my own life and I forget about you. No, this is a love which focuses on other people's stories as more important and significant than our own. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, helpfully explains what the earnestly adjective means. Earnest love implies an intent that is steadfastly pursued. 
Earnest love speaks not so much of an emotional intensity, but is in this context a love that persists despite difficulties. It's a committed love. That's why we do membership in our church, because we're saying, I'm committed to you. I'm here. You're my people. And church love is not easy, because church people are not easy, sorry to say. And the reason for that is, is we're all a bunch of sinners. Sinner plus sinner plus dozens of sinners, all in the same room, all for extended time together. That doesn't end in a nice, pretty, happy story. No, church life, if you do it well, gets harder, not easier. Because you know each other better. You drop the act. You're more likely to be tired. You're more likely you know, to let things slip. And that's why we need a steadfast commitment to one another. Because if we're going to make it through a hostile world, we need each other. It's not a preference like, oh, I, if I like this church, I'll stay or whatever. It, it, it's No, I'm committed. We're in this together. That's why he moves on to the third part. Thirdly, this is a forgiving love. So above all, primacy of love. Love one another earnestly, a communal love. And thirdly, a forgiving love, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter here is not saying that our love for each other atones for sin. Uh, This is how the world often thinks about life. If I love people and I'm good to others and I'm a genuinely decent person, well, God will cover over my sin On, on judgment day. Surely he won't turn me away if I've been a loving person. No, but the Bible teaches that there's only one way for our sins to be covered. And it's not through our example, it's not through our life, it's not through being a really nice and gentle and warm person, though I do encourage you to be one of those type of people. The only way for our sins to be covered is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 19. Blood of Christ had to be shed for your sins. The only way. But it has been shed. It has been shared so that all of your sins are washed as white as snow. That will cover your sins. Your actions of love will not. And if you're not yet a Christian or you're banking on your actions to get you into heaven, you need to give up. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in his sacrificial death for you and your sins will be covered. What Peter's talking about here, though, is also not a cover-up of sins. You know, we've seen in over the last 50 years how devastating it is when churches, pastors like myself, cover up sin. No, he's not saying cover up sins. There's right and good times when we need to uncover sins. That's Matthew 18. That's 1 Corinthians 5. So what's he saying? Well, Peter's saying that in the context of living in our lives in Christian community, as we wait Jesus' return, things are going to get messy. We're going to hurt each other. People will backstab each other. People will gossip about each other. People will be rude. People will be proud. People will be selfish. We will be those people, unfortunately. And people will just be annoying. (laughs) People will be different to you. Uh, And the call here for the good of our community and to help us make it through is in love to overlook the sins and grievances we have with one another. To be so committed to one another that if we can, 
we will forgive and forbear. That's what Peter's saying. If you can, forgive people of their sins and forbear with them in their different way of living and in their ways that they annoy you. I'm grateful for the forgiving and forbearing nature of our church. There is much you need to forgive and forbear in me. There's many of you who are very different personality-wise. I'm loud, um, excitable, unrealistically positive, and I'm sure that's annoying for a lot of people. And you just need to forgive and forbear me, and I'm grateful for that. And in our life groups, in our growth groups, in our community, this is how we get through We don't get through because we're all really similar and we just have the same preferences and we're in the same life stage and it's really nice. No, we we get through as a church because we cover over sins by forgiving and forbearing with one another. If you're new, you may really like our church. A lot of people come along and think, oh, it's so lovely. People are so welcoming. It's so small. It's, It's so great, which is really true. I believe by God's grace, we are a lovely, welcoming family church. But we're also flawed, and if you stay around long enough, you'll be disappointed. You'll be sinned against. Sadly, even I will sin against you. And so what are we to do? Well, Peter's very realistic. He knows what Christian communities are like. He knows what himself is like. And so love one another earnestly, since love covers over sin. Forgive and forbear. And maybe there's someone in the church that around you or in your home or (laughs) that you need to apply this verse to today. You need to forgive and forbear. If you need a great resource on this, there's a a book written by Ed Welch called Peacemakers. That's a great one. I'll get it for you. If you've got a significant situation where it's not easy for you to forgive and forbear and there's some circumstances where really we have to work this out and it's going to take a long time, I'd love to walk with you through that book. It's very good. Where do we get the power to do this, though, as a church? We don't just, like, grin and bear, forgive and forget. No, we go back to the cross. And we see that our mountain of sins was forgiven by Jesus Christ through his death. We go back to the cross and we remember and we, re- we realize just how much God has forgiven us. And that warms our heart to Look upon one another with mercy and grace to know that we too are just sinners. We both need Jesus. I'm going to believe the best about you. I'm going to have grace for you today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I'm going to forgive and forbear. So it's the end of the world, guys. Therefore, pray. It's the end of the world. Therefore, love. And finally, it's the end of the world. Therefore, eat. And this is an exciting command in Scripture. This is my kind of stuff. But it does strike you as a bit of odd and out of place, doesn't it? We're talking about the last days and Peter's high and holy calling for us, given that it's the end of the world, is to have someone over for a sandwich. Um, I like it though. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, What this command means is, is to have an open heart, an open life, to welcome other people in. In the ancient world, there was no kind of Ibis budget motel. Um, Often people would go to the town center and they needed somewhere to stay. And he's saying to the Christians, be those type of people that welcome people into your home, especially traveling Christians. 
But it's not just, we're not meant to just have you know, hotel, motel, home. Uh, Peter is saying that as a church community, the one another way we live is to have an open heart and an open life to one another. But Peter's also saying that an open heart precedes an open home. Peter recognizes that it's possible to show hospitality with lots of grumbling. And that doesn't glorify the Lord and doesn't bless the people. It's very hard to be hospitable. It requires time, energy, sacrifice. It requires loving one another earnestly. It requires setting up, packing down, cleaning. It's not easy to be a hospitable person. And Peter warns us against doing the action without the heart behind it. In fact, you notice all throughout the Bible, God commands not just our moral obedience, but our emotional obedience too. Our grumbling is not permissible. We need to have a happy and open heart when it comes to sheltering and welcoming in our fellow eternal brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Christ. A cheerful and open disposition. So what would this look like in practice? I mean, we're a very hospitable church already, uh, but we can seek to grow. Uh, John Dennis says this, The key to hospitality is to begin. It doesn't matter if you live in an apartment, a dorm, or a house. Once a week, opening our home, baking a few cookies, saying hello in the elevator, checking up on an older neighbor, borrowing sugar from the next apartment. That's, that's good hospitality. Can, can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the city is a place of isolation. And Parramatta, that's, you know, a lot of people come here. This is their first stop in Australia. You know, one of our brothers who's doing Starting Point he came to our church. It was his first week here in Australia. It can be isolating. But may it be that through our doors, all kinds will come. One who is hungry, an intellectual questioning, a colleague in crisis, a student from a far-off land. It may be that God's new people from the nations will sit around our table. It may be that having shared a meal and having tasted of Christ. Their own table will be open for the gospel in a country we could never reach. That is a distinct possibility for us here in Parramatta. Hospitality is not something we do overly pragmatically. We don't practice hospitality to get conversions. We practice hospitality because it is right. We practice hospitality because we are God's people. We share God's goodness through our home because God has shared his goodness to us. His grace overflows the threshold of our homes. What would it look like for you to open your heart, open your life, and if you have a home or an apartment or some way, a, a credit card that you can take people out to a cafe, that might be how you do it. What would it look like for you to grow in hospitality? It's not about hiring a cleaner and booking in a Michelin three-hatted star chef or whatever they're called to cook up a meal. No, it can be very ordinary. We, we, we hung out with Christian friends of ours two months ago and we had chicken rolls. Um, in fact, that's what we're doing today. We're having all the new mem starting point members. We're having chicken and chips, okay? Low bar. Uh, but hopefully joyful time. Uh, this Christmas as a family, we're inviting all of our neighbours and friends, not into our home, but to our front lawn just for Christmas drinks. But we're not going over the top and providing it all. We're saying, BYO a chair, BYO drinks, bring something to share. We'll have sausages for the kids. Things like that. 
where we're in people's lives and we're known as the people you can come to. Maybe for you, it's about looking out for new people on a Sunday and not just saying, hi, nice to meet you. Oh, how'd you find about a church? But then taking them home for lunch or out for a coffee during the week, getting their number, encouraging them, turning them from a stranger to a friend, not just waiting on someone else to do it, assuming we're a welcoming church, someone will do it. Well, someone has to do it. Yeah, it could be you. What a joy. That's why every month we have lunch together as a church and we ask each life group to take a turn in hosting it so we can continually keep up our hospitality skills, so we continually put this verse into practice. But how do we get there? Again, it's not by our mustering up our hospitality and grinning and bearing. Romans 13.7 says this, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. God. And we welcome one another because we've been first welcomed. We have a seat at the table. We will dine forever in heaven at the marriage supper of the bride and the lamb. And in view of that, we can open our homes to one another here and to new people that join us. So, friends, the end of the world is drawing near. At some point, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. What do we do between now and then? Well, we don't get out our charts. We don't predict. We don't look on coins to see, is it a picture of the number of the beast? We don't think a drone is the flying things in Revelation. No, no, no. We keep calm and carry on. We keep living a normal Christian life in community with one another. We don't seclude ourselves. We don't go and buy property in the middle of Australia and set up a camp and wait. No, it's the end of the world. Therefore, pray. It's the end of the world. Therefore, love one another. It's the end of the world. Therefore, have lunch together. And to do this, we need God's power. We need God's grace. And I command you, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling like, oh my goodness, you just made my life a lot harder this morning, I guarantee you, if you look to the Lord for the grace to do this, He will meet you in it. Don't try and do it on your own. You will burn out. Don't try and do it on your own. You'll get frustrated at church and the Bible. Do it by the power that only He can supply. And the result? Well, we'll be a community that's empowered by prayer, inclusive with love, and maybe a bit chubbier. <laughs> and it will be a taste of heaven here and now. Now, let's pray that the Lord will help us. And then we're going to sing a song that, yeah, the band can come up. We'll sing a song that is really just a prayer that asks God to move in us and help us do it. Let's pray. In fact, you can stand as I pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would move in our hearts to live well in the end times. We thank you that you've instructed us. We thank you that we don't do it on our own. We thank you that you give us grace. And so now we ask that you would help us to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. You would help us to love one another earnestly, covering over um, the grievances we have, forgiving and forbearing. And Lord, would you help us to practice hospitality without grumbling? Would you move in us that this would be a taste of heaven to a hungry world? And would they see your light and be drawn in? Would you use us to comfort the brokenhearted here? 
uh, to make sure that no one in our church community feels isolated or lonely. And may we all take up this charge for your glory, O Lord. And in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.